chapter 32, and that's on page 90 in the, in the Bibles on your seats or near you. So Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testament in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. 
and he took the calf he had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peter. Great. Well, my name's Stuart, and I'm on staff here, and I head up the student work and um, work with a great team there. And if we haven't met before, I'd love to say hello, so come and say hello to me afterwards. And uh, we are working our way uh, through the book of Exodus uh, in, this evening, in this evening series. And uh, if you're looking at some of the big incidences, uh, big parts of the story in, in the book of Exodus, then you've got to look at this. This is one of the big turning points for Israel. And uh, so it appears that I have drawn the short straw. And tonight we're going to be looking at this passage together. But God has good things to say to us. So why don't we pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for this story of how you went with your people um, out of Egypt and um, into the promised land. And we, we thank you for all that it teaches us. We thank you that we can Uh, look back at it. We thank you that we can hear you speaking to us in it. And we pray that as we look at this together, 
Um, as we try and see what you're trying to say to us uh, this evening, we pray that you'd speak to each and every one of us something that we can hear tonight. Amen. Okay, well, wisdom, so I am told, uh, is the ability to learn from other people's mistakes. The ability to learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't need to make them yourself. Um, and of course, that's a, that's a little bit about what we were doing last week, weren't we? We had remember, the whole nation holds Remembrance Sunday um, uh, a week ago, and there's lots of things going on Remembrance Sunday, but one of the things that we're doing is, of course, is as a nation looking back on the past and trying to make sure that we don't repeat some of the mistakes of the past. We look back and we try and learn from uh, past mistakes. Well, um, we've been, as I said, um, we've been following Moses and the people of Israel in their journey from slavery in, 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 in the land of Egypt out, and God is taking them on the way to the promised land. And this story, which I shall call from here on in Golden Calf Gate, um, has gone down in Israel's history as one of those days to remember. It's like one of the days not to forget, except it isn't because it's a great thing to celebrate. It's gone down as one of those things never to repeat. Never repeat this day. Israel told themselves many, many times. It comes up again and again in the Old Testament. And actually, even the New Testament writers several times look back to this particular incident and basically say, learn from their mistake. Learn from their mistake. And so we're going to take a look at this passage, and I have only two points for us tonight. Uh, the first one is a warning, and the second one is an encouragement. And we're going to draw those two things from this story of the golden calf. The first one is the warning. And the warning, which I think is plain and simple in this passage, is this. Beware of the danger of disobedience. Beware of the danger of disobedience. The danger we put ourselves in when we choose to actively disobey our God. I wonder if you have ever um, looked back on a moment in your life, maybe your childhood, and only in hindsight realized how much danger you were actually in at the time. Maybe at the time you were completely oblivious, uh, but then you look back and you think, oh my, wow, that could have really gone badly. Now, as I uh, do this thought experiment, I actually have far too many uh, options to pick from uh, times when I, uh, I, I seem to have nearly died. Um, and almost all of them seem to revolve around um, my old youth leader, who was just incredible father in the faith to me, but also genuinely nearly killed me about five times. Uh, so, you know, swings and roundabouts. Uh, so this, th this particular incident that comes to mind is, um, so it was with my, my youth leader, Gerard, and he was teaching me uh, to uh, strip down and rebuild uh, motorbike engines. So that's pretty standard discipleship technique. Um, so we were doing that. So we had stripped down a, a Honda motorbike engine, and we had just put it back together, cleaned it out, and sorted it out. And we were really excited with ourselves. We were trying to get it started. We got it started, and we were revving it up. And uh, we were there. The engine was here, and, uh, and, and we had there the clutch on the end was spinning. We were revving it up. And then, bang! And we, uh, we look up and see a hole in the ceiling, about an inch by an inch, through the steel ceiling, just a, a pure hole into the sky. 
And slowly it begins to, to dawn on us what has happened. We had, um, we'd assembled the engine, but we'd left the clutch half assembled. And uh, the problem with, a, with an automatic clutch is they sort of wait, you, you rev them up, and the point is that they don't kick in until it gets to a certain speed of the engine. When it gets to the top speed of the engine, there's a little pin that about an inch and a half by a half inch of steel that pops out and grabs the other half of the clutch, and that's when it starts transmitting the power. Well, it turns out we'd taken the outer casing of this off, and we'd been standing there, and I was thinking about this afterwards. That this pin came off, big slug of steel, and it had two feet it could have hit on the ground without killing us, and one foot between our heads that it had passed, and it made a hole in the ceiling above. And I was just thinking about afterwards, I'm like, this could have gone so badly. How am I still alive? And uh, it was one of those moments where I think I was totally oblivious at the time, but I really didn't realize how much danger I was actually in. And I think that this is exactly the situation that the people of Israel are in. They have never been in so much danger in their short history. The people of Israel, they've never been in so much danger, and yet they are completely unaware. And actually, to say they've never been in so much danger, I mean, that's a pretty big statement because they have been in some pretty sticky situations. If you've been coming here on, uh, in our evenings, you will have heard about some of these sticky situations. They were in oppressive slavery in, uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, they, they were literally dying under the stress of, of, of Pharaoh's slavery, and yet they had come through that. Uh, they had been stuck between the Egyptian army and an ocean. That's a fairly sticky situation. That's, that's one, for the, one for the diary. Um, they had been lost in the desert, uh, miles away from any water, miles away from any food. They had been in some pretty sticky situations. And yet, never have they been in more danger. Why? Because looking back at all of those other situations, we've seen as we've looked at those passages, actually while they, if you'd kind of stood alongside the Israelites, they looking out thought, wow, we've never seen such danger. Actually, the Lord was alongside them, and so they were safe. <laughs> you know, the Lord was able to bring them out from under Pharaoh. He was more powerful than Pharaoh. He brought them out of Egypt. The Lord can deal with an ocean. He split the sea that they could walk through it. The Lord is able to provide food for hundreds of thousands of people in the desert, as we saw a few weeks ago. They must have felt like they were never in so much danger, but actually they were safe in God's hands. But in this story, they are genuinely, genuinely in danger. Down the mountain, they feel perfectly safe. In fact, they're kind of having a bit of a, a rest. You know, they've got, they've traveled out uh, across the sea, down, down the desert, and they've reached the Mount Sinai where God has revealed himself to them and made a covenant with them. And, and Moses has gone up the mountain to hear from God. And they must have just thought, wow, great, we get to stop you don't have to travel. There's no one chasing us. We're not at war. Uh, this manna stuff, we've got that down. We know to go and uh, collect that every day. And actually, we are, we're, we're feeling safe. But up the mountain, when we take God's perspective, when we overhear the conversation between Moses and God, we realize that never have they been in more 
danger. They were literally only moments away, a hair's breadth away from being completely removed. Verse 9, God says to Moses, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Through all of the challenges they've been through, actually never have they been in more genuine danger than this day. And what has brought God to this place that he would say of the people whom he has cared for so faithfully and cared for so much to bring them through all of these things? What would bring God to this place? Well, uh, the phrase, the devil makes work for idle hands, has a nice double entendre here. Um, because uh, while, while Moses is meeting with God up the mountain, these, uh, these people get bored. <laughs> it's like, it's because they aren't on the journey. It's because they aren't facing things day by day by faith. It's like they get, they've relaxed. That almost it seems that, that everything falls apart. Moses is out of the way. He's not telling us what to do. And uh, while Moses is away, Israel will play. And, and that seems to be what happens. And, uh, and they begin to party and begin to revel. And we don't, you know, 40 days is a long time. And things begin to fall apart at the seams. And somewhere along the line, in their impatience and their restlessness, they come to, go, to Aaron and they say, make us a God we can actually see. Make us a God that we can touch and we can follow. And we want it to be like the other, you know, we're sick of this invisible God who we can't see and this Moses fellow who disappears for days on ends. Make us an idol. And Aaron, in a complete failure of leadership, gives in and he makes for them. I love his excuse later. I just threw it in the fire and it just popped out. You know, yeah, try doing that again. But why is why is God so angry? Why is he so angry? They've just, you know, things have gone wrong before. They've made mistakes before. Why is God really so furious at them here? Well, I think something much simpler um, than just making an idol is going on here. I think it's much simpler than that. I think it's called disobedience. Disobedience. In my uh, household growing up, uh, my parents were stern but fair disciplinarians. Um, so, you know, they, they ruled by law, but they did it fairly. And actually, there were only two things that I was punished for growing up. And they always made this very clear to me. Only two things I would be punished for. The first one was lying. And they told me the reason why I couldn't lie was because that just broke the relationship. They couldn't trust me then. So lying, that I was punished for. The other one was direct disobedience. Direct disobedience. And actually, you know what? Despite the fact that my parents were quite strict, I was never punished for making mistakes. I was never punished for smashing things, throwing hammers through things. I could go on and on. I, did a, I destroyed a lot of stuff as a child. But I was never punished for that. And actually, I was never punished for, uh, even when, when, when my parents sort of knew that I was being naughty and I knew sort of, sort of uh, you know, that, uh, on the edge, uh, but, but they hadn't told me not to do it. Even then, they gave me the benefit of the doubt. But what I knew I would get punished for was if I directly disobeyed something they told me not to do. And actually, you know, it didn't matter whether it was a really, really big thing or a really, really small thing. 
direct disobedience was what I was punished for. Because direct disobedience it is somehow bigger than whatever the disobedience is about, isn't it? I think any parent will understand <laughs> the, the huge thing that is going on when a parent looks in a, in a father or a mother's eyes and looks them in the eye and says, no, I know what you're asking of me, but I refuse to do it. Direct disobedience is a huge thing. And so I don't think that it's just that the people of Israel, Israel have fashioned an idol, although the problem with idols could be a whole another sermon. It's that they have done it merely days after their God had told them exactly not to do that. Only a few chapters before in Exodus 20, God has spoken to the people and in his top 10 commandments, number two was this. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous of what? Jealous of his reputation. The people of Israel several days before had been sat down on their father's knee and they had been clearly told, clearly told what was required of them. And now they are looking him in the eye and they are saying, no. And that, you will notice, is what his first accusation is against them when he talks to Moses. Verse 8, they have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them. The greatest danger that the people of Israel had been in so far was not from an enemy or from an ocean or from a desert. It was from disobedience. It was from disobedience. And even though God chose not to uh, destroy them, uh, he has the conversation with Moses. He invites Moses uh, to, to enter conversation with him. Even though he just, um, chooses not to destroy them wholesale, he does still say at the end these words which are quite hard. But he says this, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish their sin. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, hold on. <laughs> now, this is, a, this is very Old Testament. You know, this is kind of exactly what we'd expect from the Old Testament. Uh, surely this doesn't apply from us to us. Like, what relevance does this have to us who fall under uh, the grace of Jesus? But what's interesting is that uh, when the writer of Hebrews and when Paul the Apostle pick up this story in the New Testament, they do anything but say, well, that was then and this is now. In fact, they go to great lengths to, to bring them together to say, this is relevant to you. Take heed. And I'm just going to ask um, if we can have 1 Corinthians chapter 10 come up. Hopefully you can read that, but I'm going to read it. Because I just think it's worth us seeing this. This is what Paul does with this story. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. All of that, a bit complicated, I think is just his way of saying, <laughs> don't distance this story from yourself. These were the people of God 
under the, in the presence of God, under the grace of God. This is relevant to you, he's saying. Verse 5, he goes on. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most, most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things as they did. Do not be idolatrous as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they got up and indulged in revelry. That's our passage. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's, 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 it's challenging, but I think in some measure it's clear. We cannot presume upon the grace and goodness and benefits of God while we are at the same time walking in the opposite direction, while we are directly disobeying God. That is a dangerous place to be. Much more dangerous than any of the things we might face. Direct disobedience is a dangerous place. And I just want to make a few things clear before I draw this point, first point to a close. First of all, God is patient and kind. He is for us and not against us. Uh, we don't even have to look to the New Testament to see this. We just read the book of Exodus and see the patience of God with his people, the fact that he's delivered them, the love he has for them. He is patient and kind. He's not out to get them. And actually, uh, even in this passage, we see that he invites Moses into conversation with him. And he goes down, Moses goes down, he gives the people a second chance to return to him. Scriptures are clear. The book of Exodus is clear. God is patient and kind. He's not out to get us. I, we shouldn't go away from tonight or read the, reading this passage and think, oh man, is God just going to drop like a ton of bricks on me anytime I get the smallest thing wrong? Is he out to get me? Is he out to, um, to ruin my life? No, he's not. That is not the God we know. Number two, our God is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to forgive. In 1 John, 10 verse, 1 John 1 verse 10, one of my favorite verses, one to memorize is this. He said, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. Many of us have made big mistakes in the past. I have things I am more than ashamed of um, in, in, in my past. Things, disobediences. Most of us, I think, have some things in which we continually mess up in. Most of us have some habits, some uh, ways in which we just seem to continuously mess up. But in both cases, I just want to remind us, God is faithful to forgive. When we, when we fall, the answer is to run back to God. It's to run back to him. As soon as we realize, as quick as we see it, we run back to him. We come to his forgiveness. We ask for his help. We ask for him to fill us with, uh, with his spirit. We choose to put things in place and to try and, and live for him. He is faithful to forgive. 
We have to realize that God, our God is patient and kind. Our God is faithful to forgive. We, don't, we see this in the book of Exodus. But, but we still need to hear the warning which is here and which Paul would have us hear. If we know what our God requires of us, we know his commands, and we choose to persist in deliberate, unrepentant disobedience to him, when we look him in the eye and we say, no, that is an extremely dangerous place to be in. We cannot be in that place and also presume on the grace of God. In Romans chapter 8, I love it, you know, Romans, uh, uh, Paul talks about how when we are with God, leaning on him, trusting him, looking to him, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Angels, demons, uh, life, death, uh, the list goes on, and it's just extraordinary. And I, I love this. This is the story of the people of Israel. They learned that when they were walking alongside the living God, in obedience to him and following him, no challenge, however unsafe it felt, was really unsafe. They were safe in the hands of God when they were walking alongside with the God who is almighty. But when we walk away from that God, when we turn our back on him, there is no safe place. And I just want to just say that today. It's helpful for us to have in our hearts. Some of us today might, to hear, might need to hear that for today. Because you just, you, you know that there's something you are holding from God. You're saying no. Others of us just need to burrow that down into our hearts. That when that day comes, we just remember and we say, no, no, no. I'm going to run to God. That is the safe place. I'm not going to run away from him. Let me just finish by quoting John Stott, who writes um, on this topic. He says, yes, God does indeed accept us just as we are. And yes, his offer of friendship to us is truly wonderful. But he welcomes us in order to redeem and transform us, not to leave us alone in sin. No acceptance, either by God or by the church, is promised to us if we harden our hearts against God's word and will, only judgment. So, that's the warning. And I'd really encourage you, if you like, everything in you is uh, writhing at this point. I'd love to chat more about this. If you want to come and talk to me, I would happily chat um, with Fine Coffee and, and go and chat about that. But let's move on. Let's move on to the encouragement. Let's see, um, because there's something far more positive and exciting to see in this passage alongside the warning. And that is this. It is the power of a devoted life. It's the power of a devoted life. Because against the backdrop of the complete moral collapse of the Israelites, this whole people who have just run amok, certain people stand and, and shine brighter than ever before. They just stand out in the midst of this chaos. And first of all, we notice Moses himself. Or once again, it seems that Moses is the only one who seems to see things for what they really are. He's the only one who seems to get the severity of the situation. He, he's the one who understands the holiness of God. He also understands the goodness of God, but he also understands the danger that the people have put themselves in. 
But notice, he doesn't hole up on the mountain. He doesn't say to God, okay, fine, you know, right, let's, I, I like this plan, starting with me. You know, I'm, I'm the holy one. You know, get rid of these guys and let's, let's start again with me. I think, I think I can be a great nation. No, he, he doesn't hole up on the mountain. He runs down to the people. And we have this incredible image. It's really painted for us, amazing. He runs down and everyone is running amok. It, with the picture we're invited through the different descriptions is to see a, a, a riot. It, it's like civil disorder. It's like uh, spiritual disorder. It's moral disorder. It, there's a riot going on. And people are running around. And in contrast to all the running, what, is, what does Moses do? He stands. And he comes to the front of the camp and he stands for the Lord. And he calls to anyone who will hear him. Those who are for the Lord, stand with me. Come and stand with me. And what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes. We have to ask, we have to ask, how would this story have ended if not for Moses? Would there be, have been a story at all if not for the power of a devoted life? Moses runs and he stands amongst the people who are running amok. And then we notice next the Levites. And although there's every reason to believe, actually, that they are being completely implicated in this golden calf worship, they're not innocent of that. Nonetheless, when Moses stands and calls people to return to God, they hear. They hear and they respond and they run to join, maybe one or two at first. And then they gather, and a group of people stand alongside Moses. They choose the Lord. And in the midst of the complete chaos, in the midst of everyone running riot, they make the incredibly costly decision to put God first that day. And it was incredibly costly for them. And it is through them that the riot in the camp is subdued. You know, it's as if martial law is declared in the camp. And those who've been called to stand for the Lord go and they subdue the camp. And it's probably because of that that the Lord didn't have to deal drastically with the people. Again, we have to ask, how would this story have ended if not for these devoted lives? And what I want to highlight coming to the end of uh, the talk is the incredible power of a devoted life. I don't watch very much uh, reality TV, uh, but there is one show that I try not to miss, and it is Bear Grylls, The Island. Do we have any Bear Grylls, The Island fans in here? Yes, it is so good. So, it's very simple premise, really. Bear Grylls picks about 18 people, normally in two separate groups, really normal people, he gives them 24 hours of training, survival training. He gives them a couple of knives and a couple of jerry cans, and then he abandons them on a desert island somewhere in Indonesia. And they, th this is so simple. All they have to do is survive four weeks. There's no camera crew. They, they film each other. And it's, there's no, like, games or politics. It's just literally survive. Can you make it to the end of four weeks? I'll tell you what. It is good TV. Uh, it's just really funny. And... Um, so, so, yeah, so I was really struck, though. A, uh, 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 there was 
one particular episode that really stood out to me as in one of the later series. And the, this, this group had been on the island for about two weeks. And in that time, largely due to ineptitude, they had basically not eaten anything. So they've not eaten anything for a couple of weeks. Uh, they're kind of on the brink of dehydration because they're not quite boiling enough water to drink. And they're really struggling. And then at that point, this typhoon hits. And it is the typhoon of all typhoons. They have an entire week, like seven days of horizontal rain. And everything begins to fall apart. Before, they were all like, yeah, we're going to make it. We're, gonna, you know, we're all going to make it to the end. There's no way I'm going to quit, this and the other. Well, after one, two, three days of horizontal rain, their, their shelter has fallen apart. The, the floor is an inch of water. They are completely seat-deprived. Their fire, after a couple of days, goes out. They are freezing cold. They are getting hungry and hungry. Slowly, you just begin to watch over this episode. It's one by one, they crack. And they begin to say to each other, this is madness. We, we can't do this. But of course, none of them really want to say that out loud because none of them wants to be the first to leave on there because they can leave at any time. They just radio and go. But none of them wants to be the first. So they start whispering to each other. It's like, you know, we, we, wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be giving up if we left now because, you know, I mean, no one could survive this, right? I mean, surely none of us. Who, who, does anyone think? And it's slowly they convince each other until the whole group is like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to call, we're going to call, we're going to leave because no one could stand in this except one dude, <laughs> one guy. And I love this guy. He was not particularly macho, not particularly anything really, but he just said, I'm not going. <laughs> I refuse. You will have to drag me off this island. You will have to take me off in a box. I am not leaving. But you know what was fascinating? It, his one guy, he wasn't trying to argue. He wasn't trying to convince everyone. He just said, I am not going. And it just cracked the story that they were all telling to each other. They couldn't say, they couldn't say, nobody is going to stay. Nobody could stand. This is, and one by one, starting with the strongest, they, they started going, oh, no, wait, if he's staying, maybe I could stay. And then there was a group of them who were going to stay. So then it was like, oh, no, wait, I'll stay. I'll stay, I'll stay, until all of them were like, we can stay. And it was, this, it was just fascinating watch. This guy just literally went, I am not going. And it changed the whole outcome of that, of that thing. That most of them made it to the end of the four weeks. And I just want to highlight to us, guys, the power of a life devoted to Jesus. The power of one devoted person, one devoted person in a group of friends, one devoted person on a board or on, on a, in a staff room or in a family, one devoted person who says, here I stand, I can do no other. One devoted person who says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You want to go the other way? That's fine. We will stand. We will stand. And I want to say as well, you know, if that's true of individuals, how much more of a church? How much more of a church? You know, we have a vision, of course we do, to reach this city with the gospel. To have, a, to, you know, we would love to see this, this city turn to Christ. Well, there are many things, many ingredients it's going to take for that. You know, we're going to have to keep preaching the gospel. We're going to have to keep being brave and telling people the good news about Jesus at work and at home. We're going to need to make space for God to be at work through his Holy Spirit. We're going to need to be generous. There are lots of ingredients. But there is one other ingredient that is indispensable, and it's holiness. 
It's holiness. It is being a church and being people who are devoted to God, who choose obedience to the Lord. And I want to say, you know, some of us might be here thinking, wow, the first half of this sermon was for me. Uh, You know, wow. But I want to say, you know, for some of the rest of us, I just want to say, let's forget worrying about the dangers of disobedience and leave that behind us and stop dabbling with it. And how close can I get to the line? And just decide to be devoted to the Lord. Decide now that whatever the cost, you will say yes to God. When God looks you in the eye, you will say yes. And, and decide now that when you realize you're wrong, and we will all realize at points we've got it wrong. Some of us will be Moseses, some of us will be the Levites. But decide now that when you realize, when you hear, you will return as fast as your legs can carry you. And let's not just see what God will do in our, in our friendship groups, in our work, in this city, if we chose to give up give ourselves wholly to God in obedience to him. Let me pray for us as we finish. Father, we recognize so much of ourselves in the Israelites. And uh, Lord, there's so much that vies for our attention, so many things on our hearts. Lord, we want to hear the warning um, that you've placed before us tonight. But we also want to hear your call on our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would fashion in us uh, just an, an everlasting yes to you. And you would make us, through thick and thin, people who stand for you. Lord, give us courage Give us courage, Lord, speak to us, we pray, and then give us courage to stand on the things we know you've called us to do. And we ask that as we choose to do that, and as we choose to do that as a church, that you would use it, that you would call people back to your side. Thank you for the example of the scriptures, and we pray that they would not be wasted on us today. Amen.